Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And I also feel that historians, especially of Indian policy, place a lot of focus on George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. But during this Articles of Confederation period, Washington's not politically active, and Jefferson spends much of his time overseas as a foreign minister, which leaves a lot of these lesser-known men, such as Arthur Lee and Henry Knox, each famous during the time, but they have essential uh, roles in creating this new nation. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor John Dealey talking about rival Indian policies during America's early national period. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor John D. Lee, and he'll be discussing America's ever-evolving Indian policy during its earliest period, the Articles of Confederation Era. The Articles of Confederation Era are one of the least understood aspects uh, of our early national existence. Uh, We understand the revolution a lot. We study it a lot. We also study George Washington's presidency a great deal. And that period kind of remains uh, an in-between period, I think. Unheard of to most Americans and grossly understudied by most historians. And I think you can see, using the lens of Indian policy, and John D. Lee does a a wonderful job of this in this interview, uh, that... Ideas were uh, were readily available from a lot of different corners of the New Republic, and that major political change wasn't impossible. Uh, there was generally an open forum within the government to make pretty drastic changes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with John Dealey. John Dealey, thank you for joining us. Hi, Barry. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, I graduated from the United States Military Academy in 2012. Um, and while I was there, I focused my studies on the United States Army on the Western Frontier, and as well as the Indian policy of the Confederate States of America. Um, after graduation, I sort of took an eight-year hiatus from formal education while serving in the Army, uh, but continued to follow my passion of history, uh, but slowly shifting my focus to the early American period especially the development of the United States as a nation, just something that interested me, so I was able to to follow where it led me. Uh, But in the fall of 2020, I enrolled at the University of Southern Mississippi, Dale Center for the Study of One Society to pursue my master's in American history. Um, The work published in the Journal of the American Revolution that we're going to be talking about tonight in regards to the shifting um, Indian policy of the Articles of Confederation is part of an ongoing larger project for me, that's focusing on the development of the United States Indian policy and looking at that through a foreign relations lens. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, my interest in this topic took a sort of sort of gratuitous route, um, but it's definitely sort of shaped how I approach the topic. Uh, throughout my undergraduate uh, time and especially my military career, I noticed how a lot of historians that I was exposed to and military officers I worked with were often attempting to determine the earliest forms of counterinsurgency that the U.S. Army faced. And they were often looking at either the war in the Philippines during the 1890s and the Spanish-American War or the Indian Wars of the late 19th century on the plains. Um, not necessarily trying to gain insights, but they were a lot of times looking for historical events as a tool to teach uh, young officers about counterinsurgencies and trying to apply it and have young officers apply that to interactions that the U.S. Army was facing in Afghanistan and Iraq in the past couple of decades. Uh, when I started my master's program, that sort of stayed in my mind, um, but I wanted to focus on early American history and tie it into how the U.S. viewed small, non-European nations, and it just sort of shifted into the early, the country's early focus and interactions with Native Americans, um, in particular how the U.S. government viewed them um, before the sort of famous and well-known Andrew Jackson period. So a lot of times I felt... Um, the history that a lot of people are exposed to, they don't always understand the full complexity of early America and early American Indian policy. You write about two men and their respective policies in this article. Let's talk about the first. Who was Arthur Lee? Sure. Um, quick note, though, before we start talking about the policy makers, a thing that I brought this, the research brought out, especially for me, was the Articles of Confederation, we we sometimes forget that there was no you know, one government head. It was a, a rotating uh, group of delegates that were elected. So trying to identify a specific policy and tie it to one person is often difficult because these people rotated out. Um, Arthur Lee is probably the best one for this situation. Uh, he, he's a member of the famous Lee family from Virginia. He was um, Some of his brothers were Richard Henry and William Lee of Revolutionary War fame as well. Um, he happened to be in England throughout the 1750s, 60s, and into the 70s, getting a medical degree from the University of Edinburgh and a law degree from the Middle Temple University in London. Uh, so since he was in school at England, he often served as a representative for the American cause, and especially as the fighting ramped up in the American Revolution, he served as a, a sort of ambassador for the young nation alongside Benjamin Franklin and Silas Dean. Um, th these travels took him to London, Paris, Spain, Berlin to gain support for the young nation. He did come back before the war's end and was elected as a delegate to the Continental Congress, um, which was the Congress that served under the Articles of Confederation. His passion and what he wanted to be was to serve as the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, uh, but other delegates were given those positions, so he got relegated to the Committee on Indian Affairs and that was just, while he was in a delegate for three years, he served in that role through those three years as this um, committee member who laid out some of the policies. But what really makes him as sort of this key person is his role after his committee time. He was assigned to be one of the five commissioners to negotiate some of the first treaties, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix and the Treaty of Fort McIntosh in 1784 and 85. These were the first non wartime treaties that the U.S. engaged in during or with the Native Americans. 
and 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 his role, his critical role throughout all these periods, makes him the the one um, piece of continuity through all these processes. Describe Lee's Indian policy. Lee's Indian policy. It's hard to tell if he had a long term view for it. Um, initially, he his policy was shaped by short term sort of goals. It was also fed a lot by other delegates' opinions and sort of pop. Um, popular opinion. Um, Native Americans had played a critical role in the Revolutionary War, serving on both the British and the American side. Uh, your previous podcast with David Irvin in early June uh, actually sort of outlines and brings up and brings to light some of those their role, especially on that frontier violence. But once the war was over and the Treaty of Paris was concluded, the Americans were trying to understand how to both assert the claims to the lands the British ceded in the Treaty of Paris, as well as what to do with the Native Americans on those lands. The U.S. got a a very generous land grant at the end of the war. They got all the land along the eastern seaboard and then the land east of the Appalachians, west of the Appalachians and east of the Mississippi, north of the 31st parallel, which is the northern border of modern-day Florida, and south of the Great Lakes, this large swath of land but it was populated by Native Americans. Arthur Lee uh, took the opinion, especially of a large group of the population and the frontiersmen who had experienced this Indian violence, that the Indians had lost the war, therefore they had to pay some form of war reparations for the damage they had done. In Lee's mind, this came out as a right of conquest. Therefore, since the United States won the war, they had the right to the land of the, uh, their enemies. We see this especially in European conflicts, uh, the French Indian War, lands that transferred from the English and the French as a result of um, who won and who lost the war. So Arthur Lee took this sort of diplomatic concept that he was exposed to and utilized and had seen work in Europe and applied it to the Native American tribes he was conducting treaties with. Um, it's this right of conquest, and in treating them like a European nation, he almost gives them a degree of sovereignty and envisions them as their own independent nation, even though he's taking things from them. How did his policy differ based on the circumstance, depending on one particular Indian nation's role during the revolution? It was a bit transactional. Yes. So this, this transactional sort of attitude he had, um, especially for the enemies, it was this right of conquest. They would you know, take the land that the Americans thought they had one for being victorious and would give them some small gifts to placate the tribes. But what was interesting, and especially um, a discovery that I made, and it's not a new discovery, but new to me, was how they treated allied tribes, specifically the Oneida and Tuscarora is a good example. Um, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix is often remembered for the lands that it took from the, the five nations in the uh, New York area. But within that same treaty, it is specifically mentioned that the Oneida and Tuscarora tribes, which had allied with the Americans during the war, were to remain in control of their claimed lands and, to, and were um, to not to be disturbed on those lands. And so that Lee and the American commissioners specifically looked out for the well-being of tribes that had allied with the Americans at the same time and in the same document. They were taking lands from, from tribes that were previously their enemies and allied with the British. Another way of seeing this was two acts passed by Congress. 
One was in 1783 in that winter. Uh, it was a very hard winter, and many of the Indian tribes were short on food. The Continental Congress directed the then Secretary at War, Benjamin Lincoln, to provide food support and clothing support to specifically the tribes that had allied with the Americans, um, with no mention of aiding any of their former enemy tribes. And then the other issue, which arose a couple years later, um, we all know the issues with money and pay that existed throughout the Continental Army, and especially in the Articles of Confederation um, period after the war. But Congress was so compelled and agreed to pay, excuse me, back pay to Indian officers who had served with the Continental Army from those allied tribes. And these Indian officers were often the chiefs that were giving a um, military rank in order to help persuade the tribes uh, to join the um, American side. But the fact that they were willing to go and provide back pay to these tribes that had allied with them shows a very distinct um, way of dealing with each tribe based upon their wartime allegiance with America. We're all very familiar, of course, with Henry Knox. Uh, how does Henry Knox become involved in Indian affairs? So at the close of the War for Independence in 1783, as the Continental Army is slowly or slowly slash quickly slash drastically drawing down, they go from this large force and then it just it takes a little while and then immediately they're down to below 100 soldiers. Um, Henry Knox was the senior officer that remained. He served as still a major general as the commander of West Point. At that point, was the only active um, military post. The last secretary at war was Benjamin Lincoln, who, when his term expired in 1783, uh, the War Department, or excuse me, the Continental Congress did not replace him and left that seat vacant. Henry Knox, throughout 1783, 1784, and 85, served as a senior officer in the United States Army. Granted, it was under 100 people. By 1785, the Continental Congress recognized the need for a secretary at war, primarily to coordinate and organize a militia request that was being utilized by the Articles of Confederation. So they um, pretty much all agreed because he had been serving in a position almost exactly similar to it to make Henry Knox the secretary at war. The way Indian affairs fell under the secretary at war and by 1786, the Continental Congress had been using a committee system to interact and conduct treaties or any sort of policy with the Native Americans. That was becoming very burdensome. Therefore, they decided to create an Indian department uh, to coordinate and manage all of the Indian affairs. At the time, there was only really three primary departments of the government. There was the War Department, the Foreign Relations Department, and the Treasury Department. In the minds of the Continental Congress, the War Department was the only one that focused within the continental United States. Therefore, it made sense to place the Indian Department under Henry Knox. As Secretary at War, Henry Knox had a staff of two people. He had two clerks that worked underneath him, and then the, the few soldiers that were out in the field at the various frontier posts. By adding the Indian Department to the War Department, he increased this, that increased the size of the War Department bureaucracy to an astronomical 10 to 12 people, depending on who was actually in the slot at the time, primarily because this included the superintendents and Indian agents of the various uh, districts that they oversaw. 
What did Knox view as the primary cause of violence on the frontier? This is a tricky situation uh, because a lot of historians and writers during the time also were very, con- I wouldn't say confused, but conflicted on where they felt the violence originated from. But for Henry Knox, he was very adamant that there was one root cause, and that root cause was settlers settling onto Indian lands without permission. Knox developed a quickly developed a very, I'll say, strict interpretation of Indian treaties, and he saw them as law approved by the national government. Therefore, anyone who did not follow the um, stipulations and articles of a treaty was violating national law. And for Knox, that violation often came in the form of settlers, be it land speculators or just frontier settlers looking for better farming land, moving into Indian territory without permission against the stipulations of a treaty. Often the treaties uh, were dictated to the Indians with such language as illegal settlers that settled on Indian lands were outside of the protection of the United States. Therefore, the Indians could attack those settlers and the United States would not um, demand retribution. So Knox, Knox took that very literally, a literal interpretation of that. <clears throat> and he shaped his policy around um, preventing illegal settlement from occurring uh, on Indian lands. He represented a major shift in America's Indian policy. What was it? While Knox was secretary at war under the Articles of Confederation, there was uh, sort of two shifts. One, um, not as nearly defined as his shift, and one that I believe is clearly defined as his shift. The first shift is this idea of purchase of the soil from Indians. This purchase of soil idea, um, a lot of historians place it as coming out of the Northwest Ordinance, but a lot of politicians at the time were moving to that direction. And this purchase of soil idea was that the United States, in order to claim Indian lands, had to purchase the lands from the Indians. Knox was a very big proponent of that, but through the 1786 debate for the land ordinance of 1787, 1787 and on, politicians came to just accept that purchase of soil. But Knox's true shift to the Indian policy uh, revolved around how he viewed the role of the military in enforcing Indian treaties. Knox's vision for the military on the frontier most closely be related to what we picture today as border patrol, Um, a military force that would keep the two sides divided, prevent illegal crossings, and if illegal crossings into Indian territory or Indians into white territory occurred, to remove uh, those parties forcefully if necessary. This shift of, it's, it's tough to call it a shift, it's really just a initial use. Arthur Lee, when he was um, guiding Indian policy, really didn't utilize the military other than to provide protection for the um, commissioners. I'm I'm referring to the national military here, whereas Knox was pushing for a stronger national military to protect the two sides um, of the treaty, the Indians and the whites, basically from each other. Knox's trouble, though, was most states still had a very active frontier militia that would um, act independently of these treaties. And often Knox and the Congress was 
fighting with state legislatures and governors to control their militias to prevent this um, this conflict from arising. Two notable states during Knox's time that he ran into issues with were Georgia and North Carolina, who not only ignored illegal settlement, they um, refused to accept the national treaties that were signed with the Creek and Cherokees, <clears throat> as well as sending their militia out under their the governor's um, wishes to attack Indian tribes if they felt violence was imminent, which in Knox's mind was beyond uh, the, the rights of the states because Indian policy was between the national government of the United States and then the Indian nation's government, uh, mainly the chiefs that um, were in charge. What policy does America ultimately settle on, if it ever does? So America does settle after the Articles of, of Confederation are replaced by the Constitution. Henry Knox remains on as George Washington's Secretary of War as well, with the same responsibility over Indian policy. So Henry Knox plays this unique role of being a executive level um, person in both the Articles of Confederation and <clears throat> the new um, Constitution. And in his role under Washington, he continues with his Indian policy. So really what we see is as you continue your, your, your research and as I'm continuing working on my, my project, I see Knox developing his policy on, and the national policy under the Articles of Confederation and then fully implementing it and refining it under Washington's presidency. And a lot of his, his policy, if you sort of had to sum it down to, to a few key points, was enforcing treaties as national law, using the military not necessarily to remove Indians, but to prevent white and Indian interaction that would cause violence and to rein in the state's um, claims to frontier lands, which often led to the conflicts between Indians, the United States, and the individual states. Um, Knox's idea gave the Indian tribes a degree of sovereignty and ability to conduct diplomacy in almost a European fashion, and we can see that continued and growing during Washington's, uh, Washington's time. The one thing that, that people often point to, you know, and it, it does occur sort of outside the scope of the, the paper I, I wrote, but in uh, Journal of American Revolution, but it's continuing with my research, is they often point to the early Indian wars of the 1790s that end with uh, the Battle of Fallen Timbers and the Treaty of Greenville, and use this as a reason to say the United States and Washington were willing to use the military to relocate or extirpate the Indians. This was also during the tenure of Henry Knox, but the goal ne wasn't necessarily to push the Indians out. Henry Knox and Washington saw treaties as a legally binding document, and often the, the battles that they fought were against tribes that they did not have a treaty with. Um, so it was very easy to consider these tribes as enemy nations versus an allied nation that you have gripes against that you have to work through. How does this article help us to understand the American Revolutionary Era better? I think that the, the big thing I took away from writing this article, and I think it would help other historians as well, and it's outside of the, the Indian policy, Indian affairs realm. Uh, often um, we see the Articles of Confederation as this period of failure and just inevitable demise. 
and we see the the leaders just trying to stave off destruction long enough to get the Constitution up and running. Um, what I hope this paper shows and, and what I got from it is the Articles of Confederation period was essential to creating the American system as we know it today. A lot of growth actually occurred during that period. We see, at least through the War Department with Henry Knox and the Indian Department, we see this growth of a bureaucratic system that begins to understand and, and work its way around dealing with issues that span the whole frontier border. Um, and we see this growth, we see growth there and not just this slide, this slide backwards. Um, and I also feel that historians, especially of Indian policy, place a lot of focus on George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Um, but during this Articles of Confederation period, Washington's not politically active, and Jefferson spent as much of his time overseas as a foreign minister, which leaves a lot of these lesser-known men, such as Arthur Lee and Henry Knox, each famous during the time, and some so today, but not that the, they don't have the name recognition for most folks, but they have essential uh, roles in creating this new nation, and a lot of their decisions and precedents they've set continue on um, well after they're gone. Um, and really, I hope that this work encourages other historians to look at the Articles of Confederation not as an abject failure, but as an incubator for policies and practices that would shape America as we know it today. John Dealey, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.